Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in lovely Cape Town, South Africa. Kobus, how are you this afternoon? I'm very good, thanks. And you? Wonderful. Well, uh, also on the line this evening for us, uh, coming from Beijing, China, is Anne Sherman, who you may know as the voice of our wonderful Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Anne is the, 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 the person who kind of corrals 17,000 fans and kind of keeps the discussion going together. Good evening, Anne. Good evening. Well, we have uh, three really interesting topics today. We're, last week, we took a kind of a broader focus on media and devoted to a single uh, subject. We're getting back to our normal format this week. Uh, we're first going to talk about, you know, is it on, is it off, is it on, is it off, which is the Beijing Automotive Works taxi factory in South Africa. Now, that may not sound that interesting, but what it does is it represents kind of so much in terms of the industrialization of China-Africa relations, and this was a lot of drama in South Africa this week. Uh, I was tweeting earlier in the week, wow, this thing is taking off, it's going, and then all of a sudden later in the week, no, it's not. So we'll get from Cobus a few insights on, on what's happening there. Then we're going to head to the uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo uh, for a report about uh, illegal industrial logging that's happening there. Now, that by itself shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how corruption is affecting the ability for the government to actually manage the logging in the DRC and, and, all, and, and logging in general. And so an NGO came out with a report there. And finally, Finally, we're going to t- step back a little bit and look at a new report that came out of the World Bank that suggests that by 2025, most African countries will be middle-income countries. Now, that's a, a designation that basically says that once people make a, a, a country has $1,000 per, uh, per capita income, that puts it into this new tier. And we'll ask the question of how does this affect China-Africa relations, and could this have happened without the huge surge in Chinese investment and Chinese trade? Uh, with the continent. So we'll take a look at that. So, Kobus, uh, let's first get started with uh, this, this drama that really happened this week in, uh, in South Africa, you, where, you know, obviously your home country there, uh, with this, this Beijing Automotive Works uh, taxi plant factory. Before we get started, let me just give a, set, the to- the, this, set the table here with a few statistics. Uh, Beijing Automotive Works in conjunction with the South African government, which I understand is the Industrial Development Corporation and China Africa Motors, uh, had built a 200 million rand plant, 470 jobs. Uh, the, fa- the factory was to produce 9,600 taxis per year. Uh, and this is really, this is the dream of what we've been kind of talking about in the continent of, you know, China bringing manufacturing in helping the continent industrialize, not necessarily undermining local prices with the low-cost products that are being kind of brought in through nefarious trade trade agreements. But this seemed like this was the perfect agreement. And then all of a sudden, it, you know, it was it was eighty sixth. What happened, Cobus? Okay, <clears throat> there's a few things you need to keep in mind. In the first place, um, when we say taxis, you don't mean the kind of um, sedan style, New York style, yellow taxi kind of format. You, what you mean are little mini buses that take about 16 people. And they are the backbone of, of public transportation in South Africa. And they are, you know, kind of uh, driven by all these these individual taxi drivers who own their own taxis and then are represented by a big umbrella organizations. And the biggest one is the South African National Taxi Council. And they are the people who basically killed this deal. Well, they they they, um, they said that they're not good. They're telling their members not 
not to buy these uh, these Chinese-made uh, and South Africa-assembled taxis because they're not uh, they're not high enough quality. And the other problem that they have is that they have difficulties getting spare parts. And now, how this works is these taxis are very expensive. Um, so the taxi drivers buy them on on loans and then pay them off as they deliver fares. Um, and if they can't get spare parts, that means that frequently the taxi gets repossessed while they're still waiting for the spare parts. So even though um, you know, kind of, it's much more expensive, they tend to go for Toyota taxis um, who have basically cornered this market. And um, you know, and the Chinese are having a lot of problems getting in. Okay, so that brings up two key points here. One, which is, and we've talked about this in in the kind of retail automotive market in South Africa, which is one of the biggest challenges facing China's car com- Chinese car companies, is the fact that they don't have the dealer networks, the supplier networks, and all of that infrastructure that really goes to help build a successful automotive automotive manufacturing and distribution system. Okay, so that's number one. Couldn't they have foreseen that this was going to be the problem? Why, you know, four weeks before this factory is to open, did they did they come up with this now? I mean, this is not a new problem. No, this is, I mean, this is, you know, this has always happened. Um, I think, yeah, I think what one issue is that they, that they, the project has really been pushed by the South African government who wants to try and get, uh, get this project up and running and, and kind of prove that they, that they're creating jobs before the big leadership, um, you know, uh, Congress that has happening at the end of the year. That's one thing. Um, I think the other thing is that um, the process has apparently been pretty opaque. You know, kind of the, the taxi people, and you have to keep in mind, these taxi organizations are a handful. They are, <laughs> they are really, really belligerent and really difficult to work with. And in the past, the governments, uh, the, the city governments of Johannesburg and Cape Town tried to bring in bus systems that, uh, that were kind of, you know, bringing new, undercutting the taxes and bringing new competition, and they were shooting matches in the street. So you don't take on these taxi organizations just as is. Um, and, you know, so there's been back and forth about um, about how, to which extent they've been consulted in this whole process. Um, uh, Beijing Automotive Works are saying that they flew the flu representatives out to Beijing to have two... Um, to brief them, the taxi people are saying they've never heard of anything like that. So it's 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 a big back and forth, a very classic South African back and forth. Okay, so this is my second point that I was going to bring up here is the fact that you know these taxis were not exclusively to be built for the South African market. I mean, ninety six hundred a year is the output potential of this of this plant. Uh, that may I'm not. I'm not an expert on the South African taxi market, but that seems like a very high number for South Africa. So it was really going to be a launch pad for the rest of the continent uh, to to basically manufacture and export from South Africa to the continent, which, of course, is exactly how South Africa wants to position itself on the continent as the gateway uh, for the for industrial manufacturing. Uh, could that go ahead? So let's say forget South Africa. Let's let's export taxis all, all, all you know, to Botswana, to, to Zimbabwe, to anywhere else that wants these same type of minivan. Uh, vehicles. Um, yeah, potentially, you know, kind of, and I think they they are, and um, the plant is still going ahead, albeit with a different model of taxi. So the one that they were planning that was supposed to be much cheaper than the Toyota one has pretty much been killed. They're going ahead with a more expensive one, um, and they they are planning to to kind of pump it out into into the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. So I think that could potentially happen. I think the the um, the perception that these taxis are going to fall apart so that is a big problem. You know, it's it's significant 
significant to see the difference in prices. They they were pushing a taxi that's 180,000 rand, which is about a little bit more than $20,000. Um, the taxi organization came back and said that they actually prefer to pay $32,000 for a Toyota taxi that they know is going to last. So the big problem that the Chinese are facing here is this old you know, perception that Chinese products aren't as strong. Um, well, you know, and then uh, the other problem is also... To go ahead, sorry. Yeah, oh, go I was going to say, that's interesting that you say that, Kobus, because we had a discussion just like this on our Facebook page um, of people saying that because Chinese uh, products and goods are often lower priced, they automatically assume that they're of lower quality. And I think one of the things that I kind of thought was interesting um, after reading about this this week was... You know, if in fact um, the South Africa Taxi uh, Association did go to Beijing and inspect these plants, you know, if they decided that the uh, quality was somehow uh, too low or inferior, how come they couldn't demand, you know, uh, higher quality or, or, you know, set standards? Or um, it it seemed like um, they kind of dismissed uh, because of the this, you know, this image that we hear that all Chinese goods are automatically low quality. Well, this is, and this brings up, you know, Cobus, yes, yeah. this brings up one very important I think, point. I think, that, another, I think you're hitting another problem here, which is a specific South African way of dealing with, with situations that you might not like, which is to let it run on for a while and then react really violently and disruptively when you when you find out that it's actually going ahead, which is unfortunately... Well, the, hey, listen, if I was making... ...procedure in South Africa generally, um, you know, so I think that might have played a role. There might also have been some kind of, um, you know, in forming within the taxi organization itself. I don't know, but they, those those organizations are incredibly opaque. So, you know, you don't really know what's going on. Kobus, this, uh, you know, this brings up one very important point here, and this is something we've talked about, you know, with Cabuena in Ghana and some other folks around 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 the continent, which is this, this question of quality that Anne brings up. So, on the one hand, uh, the Chinese do have a probably well-deserved reputation for producing crappy products and low-cost products. Uh, <laughs> one has to... To question, though, which is, is that a consequence of the fact that the African market simply right now cannot afford to pay for higher quality products? I mean, certainly, you know, China is and Chinese auto manufacturers are trying to make inroads in the U.S. now with Geely. Uh, they own Volvo. Uh, they have the ability to make extraordinarily high quality products. The question is, if they brought in a more expensive car, a higher quality car, would the market in not only South Africa, but anywhere else be able to hold it? And that goes for, you know, radios to roads to cars to taxis and whatnot. That's question number one. Question number two is, God, if I was, you know, Beijing Automotive Works and I'm seeing how South Africans handle things, like as you said, um, this is the last time I would ever invest in uh, in South Africa. I'd take my business to places where I don't have unions and and also to take my, my business to places where there isn't a political environment that seems to, um, you know, encourage this type of behavior. What, how, how do you react to that? What's your, well, not you personally, but yeah. how, how do people react well, to that? Is this dangerous? You know, that, that's, you, you're echoing something that has been, that has been um, you know, kind of been aired a lot in the South African press recently. And one of the, it, it comes down to a very fundamental problem in South Africa, you know, in the sense that the, the ruling party, the African National Congress, is so complex that it ends up representing different, you know, people with really, really different uh, agendas under the same umbrella. So the ANC is essentially the party for both the workers and the bosses. Um, you know, so that that is a, is a big problem. In terms, of, in terms of whether the African market can afford it, I mean, South Africa has about 200,000 taxis running. Um, and 
And each of those costs roughly about thirty thousand dollars. So they can afford it if they if they feel that it's it, that it's going to last and going to you know pay them back in the long run. I think taxes are. Uh, you know they, they have a much harder life than than uh, you know than normal um, commuter cars. You know, and for that reason, the quality issue becomes more acute. You know, and it's funny. I mean, you're sitting obviously in Beijing, where you know there's no shortage of taxis and there's no shortage of cars. Um, you know, and it really does go to the what what the brand made in China means. Um, you know, certainly here in Southeast Asia, you know, people are are really fearful of you know food and pharmaceuticals and other kind of products coming from China because of the level of counterfeit and the and the poor quality of the production. Um, but on the other hand. Um, China is now becoming a leader in, 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 in technology. It's obviously the iPhone is made in China. Most likely this microphone that I'm talking on is made in China at, you know, world-class standards. So, you know, this really is a, is a potential problem for China. And I wonder how they evaluate their own brand and how, what they can do to, to change this when they, when they think of events like this. Right. I mean, I think that most Chinese that you'll talk to uh, recognize this issue. Um, I mean, they, like you said, there are scandals all the time in every single sector from, you know, food to uh, any kind of product, you know, that there is really low quality, uh, low quality goods. And um, there is a serious problem with transparency and corruption here. Um, But I think that at the same time, like you said, there are many very high quality goods uh, made in China. And I think that it's all about, um, you know, setting standards and, you know, very, very tight oversight of production. Um, and, you know, I think that this is something that China really has to be aware of um, because it's going to affect, uh, you know, its ability to uh, enter markets overseas like South Africa. Yeah. I mean, so really, as with so much in the China-Africa relationship, you can see what you want in this story. This high, this is a great story for the broader relationship in the fact that, you know, clearly they're bringing jobs, they're bringing manufacturing, they're bringing industrialization. But at the same time, it's not as simple as that. Uh, and this will be a story, of course, that we continue to follow. But we'd like to hear from you on our Facebook page. What do you think of Made in China? You know, what do you think when you hear the brand? Do you want them to come to your country? Do you want made in China products? They are lower cost. They are bringing, in fact, more choice, more variety at a lower price point than if you were to buy products from, say, Europe or the United States. Uh, that's certainly the case in, in many, you know, many developing countries, particularly in Africa. So tell us what you think and go to Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. All three of us are commenting on the stories. We'd like to hear what you think. So let's move now up north just a little bit to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, not to be confused, of course, with the Republic of Congo, um, because actually, interestingly enough, this story of illegal mining is relevant to both the Republic of Congo and the DRC. But we're going to talk about a report that came out from uh, an NGO called Global Witness. Uh, they report, issued a report this week called, in October, uh, The Art of Logging Industrially in the Congo. And a couple key points on it is the fact is that the DRC has the world's second largest rainforest, and now what they're seeing is is really mass logging, logging using artisanal artisanal logging permits (ALPs). And what the Global Witness is alleging is the fact that uh, this abuse of ALPs is permitting Chinese uh, loggers, and they don't specify exactly who when they say Chinese loggers, uh, to to clear cut uh, big parts uh, of the forest. So. 
Cobus, what was your first reaction when you when when you came upon this this both you know the Global Witness report and the idea that uh, certain Chinese actors are are abusing or potentially abusing because we're going to get to one key point here potentially abusing their permits to clear cut and uh, certain parts of the Congolese rainforest. Well, what's very interesting for me is, you know, is, is China's very complicated role in all of this, because there are certain companies from both China and Hong Kong that are actually logging there, but there are also a lot of companies from the EU and Lebanon also logging in, in, in the DRC. But the big thing is that China has become the center for processing, as well as a big market, which means that even, you know, some of these Lebanese companies also actually end up exporting some of the wood to China. But then, because China is a center for, for processing wood, they end up exporting a lot of this, this Congolese wood to the, to the um, environment, to Europe and to North America. Okay. So, you know, it becomes this incredibly complicated kind of international circulation with China, where China plays a few different roles at the same time. Well, let's let's break this into two parts, as you've suggested. One, there are the actual Chinese actors in the DRC who are cutting down the forests, and then there's the what what you alluded to, the China market itself, which is both a processing and a consumer market. Increasingly, um, that that Chinese consumers are are purchasing it. So let's let's hit the first one, and then we're going to get to Anne for the second one. The the first point is, and this is really what just annoyed me to no end about this uh, this report. Um, one, there's the implication that there is a Congolese legal system, which if anybody who spent five minutes in the Congo knows, there is no such thing as a Congolese legal system. And continually throughout <laughs> the report, they were saying, you know, that they, they need to respect Congolese law. They need to respect, you know, the prime minister needs to sign this agreement. And it's the boneheadedness of NGOs who, again, one, who are using kind of a Western way of thinking, imposing it on a part of the world that simply does not work that way. Um, you know, looking at transparency International's Corruption Index. So the DRC comes out as 168th out of 182, right up there with Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan. This is a country that f- basically does not have a functioning government. So the whole premise of the report saying they're not respecting uh, Congolese law, to me, is flawed. So we'll start with that. Secondly, and Kobus, you and I have talked about this a number of times on the show, they, they didn't actually identify who the Chinese stakeholders are, who the Chinese actors are, and the Chinese pointed out very clearly that maybe they're not breaking the law. If they've been given a a permit by any authority in Congo, does that make them legal? Um, And so I guess the question is that the, the report somehow puts the blame on the Chinese, and I'm not here to defend the Chinese, but one of our themes on this show is where does ultimate responsibility lie? And really, should the report be, you know, shortcomings in the Congolese regulatory system are permitting any actor to to cut down and clear-cut the forest? Is this not a Chinese problem, but ultimately uh, a Congolese and an African governance problem? Kobus, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. You can have a weekly podcast about crazy things going on in the DRC, and you'd have like oh, it'd be enough fantastic. stuff to talk about for years. You, oh, it, so, it would you know, be, kind yeah. of the, the the fact that the that the two different kinds of permits are being are being you know kind of wrongly you know kind of given out to to, to the wrong to the wrong players. I mean, that's not surprising. You know, kind of more insane things happen in the DRC on a daily basis. So, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, from the Chinese company's perspective, that they have a piece of paper with an official signature. What more do they need, you know? Um, and well, uh, the, the, the fact that the Congo is so dysfunctional is the real problem. Sorry. Go ahead, Anne. 
I mean, I think that I totally agree with both of you. Um, I think one thing that China or Chinese companies and um, entrepreneurs and those doing this do need to keep in mind is that it still goes back to China's image. And, um, you know, China has this huge soft power campaign um, pushed through Africa. And if it wants to, you know, be respected and be known as a responsible actor and, you know, um, as a an actor that respects uh, laws and that, you know, cares about the environment and about sustainability, then I do think, um, you know, even though it's probably uh, the DRC government's responsibility, um, I think that China does need to be aware of, you know, what people are thinking about, um, you know, its involvement in this. Okay, so Anne, you, you brought up the, the devil's argument here, you know, the other side of it, and I'm glad you did that, and I know you weren't just baiting me on this. <laughs> but, so, that that argument would imply, and I'm not going to attack you personally, so, <laughs> but that argument would imply that, A, these are Chinese state actors who are somehow working in collusion with the state, implying that the state actually has some control over what these actors are doing on the ground, um, which they they have no jurisdiction whatsoever to enforce any law in the Congo. Um, they don't may not have any influence necessarily. Um, and, and two, the levels of corruption that are coming out of China to, to determine where the source of this wood is, is, is obviously, you know, we talked earlier about corruption in China. But, you know, this is such a disorganized type of event and activity that's going on that nobody seems to have any control over it, much less the Chinese. Um, you know, the Chinese have doing a soft power push, but it, that's, you know, clearly on the CCTV side and on the media side, but this this to me is so kind of chaotic. Uh, and, and you know, our good friend Howard French, who we make reference to every third month on this podcast, he makes a good point, saying that the the level of business being done in Africa on, on, by Chinese of all different stripes is now getting to be so vol- voluminous that it is beyond the control of the Chinese government. So even if they did want to actually have any influence or sway. Could they do anything, and what could they do? And what do you think? I mean, you know, I I, I really can't argue. I think one of the things that <laughs> um, kind of struck me um, after you know reading about this was this really does come down to um, you know weak government and basically a lack of government. I mean, I think that you know one of the main issues that we're talking about is that you know the Chinese loggers can't get the industrial permit. And so instead, they have to get this artisanal permit. And um, the the article that we that we're talking about actually points out that the government, the DRC government, is actually not uh, benefiting very much because there's uh, not much tax revenue that comes out of the artisanal uh, permit. And so, you know, if there was any sort of um, enforcement or government uh, authority here, they could, you know, start giving out industrial permits that have really high taxes or high fines and they could, you know, kind of discourage, uh, you know, Chinese entrepreneurs from from doing this kind of logging by raising the prices and they could also benefit a lot more from it. But I think the fact of the matter is, if I'm understanding it correctly, um, you know, that there just isn't any sort of... um, ability or power of the government to no. um, kind of regulate this. What, what is it that, you know, one, one other very important point to make up is the fact that Kinshasa has almost no control over the provinces. So even if there was a government policy in place, it would not necessarily be able to enforce that policy. And at the end of the day, corruption is what prevails. Now, this is a case that 
you know, not, is not only applicable to the DRC, but we've been talking about mass industrial logging in the Republic of Congo. It's been reported in Zimbabwe, in Botswana, in a number of different countries, largely by non-state actors. So these are these are independent Chinese entrepreneurs. And, and what's different about what the Chinese are doing vis-a-vis, say, other colonial former colonial powers? Uh, is the or other former former colonial powers um, is the fact that the the industrialization of it all the Chinese have brought in massive machinery uh, that that you know Britain during its colonial period or the French did at their time never brought in and so the 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 pace and speed of the clear cutting is breathtaking and I think that's really what we should all be very very concerned about is the environmental destruction is happening at a level that is is absolutely tremendous and another question to you is that you know, the report kind of alluded that Chinese consumers may have a role to play in this as well. And my experience with Chinese consumers is they couldn't care less where this wood comes from. Uh, Chinese consumers will will buy a, a cheap price and, you know, and if it works great, but you're never going to get the Chinese consumer on mass to, to, to kind of be socially aware. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is exactly kind of like the ivory... Um, illegal poaching that, you know, another issue that we talk about a lot, um, where they're just now starting public campaigns to raise awareness. But I mean, I think the only, you know, you might see in the West and Europe or in the U.S. sort of people being really concerned and um, passionate about, you know, fair products and um, where their goods come from. But I don't think you see that in China at all. Yeah. But with all due respect to that, I mean, those are to me, and I come from Berkeley, California, so I'm speaking of my own tribe here, but do-gooder liberals are the ones who really focus on that. But as we saw on, on Black Friday, you know, people rushing into Walmart to buy the cheapest crap you can possibly make out of any Chinese sweatshop. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, price is what drives this. And this low-cost, you know, tropical wood is what makes your ikea furniture it's what makes your you know your target furniture it's what makes you know you know the chopsticks that we use to eat you know this is the this is the painful reality but as you pointed out that the idea of try of the u.s and europe trying to you know track and trace the source of these products is part of the new trend they did it of course in the new dodds frank bill where uh, mining in the congo the certain minerals is now uh, being tracked and, and sourced uh, we've talked about this with oil, and we've also talked about it again now with food, uh, with uh, with wood. Cobus, uh, uh, final thoughts from you on this topic. You know, I've I've been ranting and raving here like a passionate lunatic. <laughs> uh, you know, agree, disagree. What are your thoughts on on kind of where we stand uh, on this issue? Yeah, I think we're 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 kind of <clears throat> you know kind of ankle deep in a in a morass. Actually, that's where we're standing. Um, you know, one of the big problems for me with uh, with all of this is the role not only of the of the central Cong- you know, DRC government, but the the individual tribal uh, or community governments. Because you know, some of them, the South China Morning Post had a, a great kind of spin off from this report where they where they listed some of the things that these uh, Cong- that one Congolese Chinese company. So it's a it's a co-owned Congolese Chinese company. There's the stuff that they paid local chiefs to get some of these licenses, and it's stuff like seven hundred and fifty dollars a motorcycle and two bottles of whiskey. You know, so in you know, there's obviously you know one of the logics of of this kind of obviously you know there's there's, there's a lot of sensitivity towards this stuff in the West because it, it resonates so much with colonial history. Um, you know, and but what what worries me is that the classic kind of liberal Western perspective um, on all of 
this tends to tends to take um, the symbolic um, decision making power away from these local authorities, and, tr- and they tend to assume that these people are basically children. Um, and I think you know, in, in a, we, we need to find a way to actually hold them responsible in a kind of a you know in, in a kind of a more global, a kind of a stronger kind of way for these kind of decisions that they make about their you know two square kilometers of forest that also affects the rest of us environmentally. And that I have no idea how to do. You know, kind of, I, it's one of those things where you know I feel we should do it, but I'm not sure how. I mean, you bring up that point of not knowing what to do. I was thinking, okay, what should this NGO write? You know, they want to identify a problem. It's a legitimate problem. There's no doubt about it. I mean, my criticism of this NGO, of Global Witness, is the fact that they kept coming back to, you know, the government being the source of any kind of solution, which the Congolese government is not. Um, You know, they then kind of shifted the attention a little bit to Chinese consumers, but certainly to Western, you know, import policies and whatnot. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, American and European and Japanese consumers who buy most of the products that come out of the raw materials of Africa uh, fundamentally are not going to change their behavior. Uh, you know, I mean, how many iPhones have been sold this year? How many, you know, of that cheap crap was sold on Friday and Black Friday sales? How much consumerism and consumption that, that we do is, is built on the back of, you know, coming out of countries like Africa and the rainforest with, with the wood and whatnot? So until we are really ready to compromise our lifestyle, I don't see any change. Does any, do either one of you disagree? And then also, if if these uh, consumers do compromise their lifestyles, then what happens with the big African economic growth success story of our time? Well, you know, there you I mean, go. I mean it's a double-edged <laughs> these, sword. These forests are are ecologically incredibly, you know, important and you know central to all of us having air to breathe. But at the same time, for the individual states, they are assets, and they are assets in for for states that are incredibly poor. You know, so it, it becomes a really impossible thing to kind of work out. Uh, well, I've been particularly. Opinionated on this topic. Do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think? You know, obviously NGOs are a very sensitive issue. People um, are quite, you know, when I criticize NGOs, I get this kind of shock and horror. It's like you're criticizing, you know, mother and apple pie and, you know, all that is good in the world. I am personally not a fan of NGOs, but um, would love to hear what you think. Again, we're making a plea for some discussion on our on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where, by the way, uh, Anne is engaged in a very very interesting conversation that you posted up here on Sunday night. Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit, Anne, about that discussion you're having right now about a, a, a geology student who you came across in Beijing who had an opportunity to work in Africa. Right. So I, um, I met a friend who he's a, a leading student about to graduate college here in Beijing. And he uh, studies geology and he speaks fluent English. Um, and so uh, uh, several Chinese mining companies, actually they're mining consulting companies that do work in Africa, have approached him with some very attractive, uh, high-paying job offers if he would uh, sign a two- or three-year contract to work at a mine in Africa. Um, and I asked him, uh, you know, what he, what he thought and, uh, you know, kind of what his perception of this offer was. And he basically told me that, um, you know, while the, the pay is good and the experience is uh, rewarding, that he, he thinks that Africa is, uh, you know, too dangerous, that he's heard about incidents in mines, and he has this perception that um, 
that most countries are politically unstable and that he wouldn't be safe in Africa. And he ended up turning down all the offers. Um, and so I just posted this on our Facebook page to kind of see, you know, what, um, what our followers from around the world, um, what they thought about his, uh, his situation and, then, and, you know, these different uh, perceptions. And I think that it um, kind of uh, the reactions that we got um, kind of show that while we talked earlier about, you know, China has this image problem with, you know, low-quality cheap goods, I think Africa also has um, a growing image problem, um, which is that as we see more violence against Chinese um, in mines and construction uh, pro you know, projects in all sorts of different areas, um, there really is a uh, perception that uh, Africa is a dangerous place to work and that Chinese might not be protected there. Well, um, and so uh, the most common responses were, you know, one, that there's violence everywhere in the world and that he, he turned down a he turned down a good opportunity in that, you know, it's a it's wrong to kind of classify Africa as completely, you know, violent. Um, we got responses the other way that he made the right decision and that, um, you know, this is a real issue in Africa. Um, and then there were other responses that were interesting, I thought, that said, you know, why aren't we, why aren't these Chinese companies hiring African geologists and training Africans to speak Chinese and do this kind of work. Yeah, so, so Robin Ray, she so pointed out... Yeah, so Robin Ray pointed out that people shouldn't be blindly afraid. I lived in West Africa, Ghana, for one year and had the best time of my life. Uh, Kennedy Soko, he pointed out that you are just here to rape us, just as other colonizers did. <laughs> we have plenty of African geologists that can speak English and Chinese, but you just want to give African petty jobs. I, By the way, as we talked about last week in our or two weeks ago in our conversation about Chinese learning Afri um, Africans learning Chinese. I'm not so sure that there's that many, uh, you know, Chinese speaking African geologists. I mean, that's no, a pretty narrow. No. Uh, so I think he's just kind of not. And then uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, you know, Mark Adams said that fellow took the best decision of his life, having such perceptions about Africa. Also, an advantage to Africans who can speak both English and Chinese as well as geologists. But hey, listen, Kobus. I, I, to be honest with you, I made the same decision. I had an opportunity to go to Johannesburg, and you know what? The crime in Johannesburg scares the living daylights out of me, the random carjackings and the randomness of it all. So he's not necessarily wrong, but this could really hurt the continent in the long run if, you know, they cannot attract good talent in, you know, not only in South Africa, but elsewhere, not only from, from China, but, but at lots of countries. What, uh, what is this? Is this a reasonable concern or is this, uh, did this Chinese student uh, make a good decision in your opinion? You know, um, uh, you know, and didn't mention so far like which country yeah, in Africa he was, Did you know he was, which country uh, you know, he might have lived in. Um, but yeah, I think it's 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 a uh, it's a real worry. You know, kind of South Africa is a wonderful place to live, but it's also occasionally really scary. Um, and it very much depends on where you live. But uh, yeah, you know, kind of I think until until Africa sorts this out, it's not gonna you know it's it's gonna turn off more people than it attracts. Um, it's that's just reality. Yeah. And did he mention what country he was considering? I remember. I I don't remember one of them. The other one, I 
Actually, I'm sorry. I don't remember either. Okay, no problem. Well, um, well if you find I'll that information... I'll have to follow that, up with you guys. That would be great to follow up. But in uh, a way, you know, kind of, I think, you know, from, from having spent time in, in Japan, you know, kind of, in a way, it almost doesn't matter because Africa as a whole has this kind of image of, you know, rebels, you know, with, with machine guns on the back of little trucks, you know, that kind of vibe. I mean, that is Africa's, you know, the visual that, that comes up, you okay. know, in, in, particularly, I think, for people in East Asia. So, COVID... Um, and, you know, Africa has a lot of work to do to to fix that. Well, one way that Africa might fix that is through the help of the World Bank, which is about to classify a majority of African countries will be middle-income countries by the year 2025. So what does that mean? That means in order to be classified as middle-income, per capita income reaches $1,000. So that basically what it's saying is that this surge of economic you know, development that's happened in the past five years, uh, much of it involved with China, uh, could go a long way to kind of lifting out of poverty and lifting out of the kind of the, the, the basement of, of global economic development a majority of African countries. Now, this would go a long way to changing the perception of Africa, particularly in the West, which where we just largely write off Africa as a giant basket case, um, but to see a lot of countries rise up. Now, there are problems with this classification of middle-income country status uh, from the World Bank. So let's before we go on, Cobus, break down what you what what the problems are in terms of how it's characterized in what this means. So one of the issues is that it simply is, um, a, you know, the the index I use is uh, that a country should pass above the threshold of a thousand dollars GDP per capita. You know, um, so what that means is that countries that are actually quite strong economically, like Kenya, um, tend to not yet be on that list on, of middle-income countries because their populations are so big. While other countries that actually are quite, you know, kind of behind Kenya in lots of other ways, like for example in, in health provision, actually are on the list. Um, so you know, as far as I understand, Gabon is on the list uh, and pretty high up on the list uh, simply because they have a very small population um, and because the country as a whole as, as uh, you know, as commodities, which means that it seemed on paper it makes a lot of money. That doesn't necessarily translate into, you know, saying that, that lifestyle in Gabon is nicer than in Kenya. Yeah, I mean, you know, China is technically classified as a middle-income country, and this is something that in places like Beijing and the East Coast, which has now reached basically European standards of living, Southern European, uh, you know, Spain, Portugal, uh, that level, they're now at first world. But for the rest of China, um, it's still largely a poor country, which is at about $1,000 or about that threshold, depending on where you are. So what that Africa has made this? Uh, does it mean anything based on your experience of living in China? and seeing what another middle-income country looks like? Well, actually, I think that the um, the biggest concern on Chinese government's mind right now is um, the idea of the middle-income trap, which is that, I mean, yes, there is a lot of inequality in China, but I think that um, right now the the Chinese government is trying to figure out how it can rebalance its economy and um, reform its economy to uh, turn China into a... Um, a high-income country. And um, I was reading, or actually, I was listening to the Seneca podcast, and I heard this stat that um, in 1960, there were 110 middle-income countries, but in 1985, only 13 had of those 110 had been able to break through. And I think this is something that's really on the minds of uh, the Chinese government right now, which is that you know, China has been able to um, lift millions out of poverty and um, you know, develop uh, a lot 
because it's been able to use cheap labor, um, you know, depend on exports, um, and kind of adapt and use technology from other countries. But unless it's able to shift to domestic consumption and innovation-focused uh, economy, then it will kind of remain stuck in this um, position. And there's an excellent book that you made reference to from the, the Seneca podcast uh, by James McGregor. I'm spacing the name of it, but he wrote One Billion Customers. Excellent book. And he talks about the middle-income trap, which is really, you know, the first phase of a country is to do low low-cost manufacturing. And that's certainly what we're starting to see in Africa, uh, certainly what China, Vietnam, and other countries have done. Uh, and then the second phase is in order to get out of this middle-income trap, in order to get past about one to $2,000 in per capita income, you actually have to innovate. And most countries, as McGregor points out, uh, do not pass that test. China has still to be determined, but certainly Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, and Japan represent the countries that did successfully do that in the 20th century. But the overwhelming majority of countries, like Argentina, for example, have not been able to get out of that middle-income trap. Uh, Here in Vietnam, it's also a big question as to whether they will be able to cross that threshold. So it's one of the questions that we bring up when looking at African countries approaching this middle-income status is what's next. Cobus, my first question when I read this was, do you think it would have been possible for any of these African states, ex-South Africa, because they were already at middle-income status, uh, to be able to have done this or reach this goal if they do in fact do it without China's engagement and without the $166 billion of now bilateral trade between China and the African continent? No, I don't think so. I think most of them probably not. But at the same time, I think they probably did it in different ways. So, you know, kind of a divide. This, the, the author, one of the authors of this report is a guy called Wolfgang Fengler, and he divides these uh, middle-income countries in Africa into different groups. Um, and the mature, in the first place, he has mature ones, and those are mostly in the south and on the island states, so like Cape Verde, Mauritius, and then also South Africa, Namibia, and so on. And then um, secondly, commodity um, middle-income countries like Angola, the, the Congo, Brazzaville, um, Equatorial Guinea, and so on. And they, of course, um, the, these two groups, you know, both the, the Chinese influence is very strong, but in different ways. You know, so um, in the case of the commodity ones, it's simply, I think, because China buys some, so much commodities from them. So, you know, the fact that they have a lot of oil, they export it, and that kind of lifts them artificially up. That doesn't necessarily translate into them having, you know, kind of any kind of actual kind of social kind of payoff from that. No. Um, while the mature ones, I think there you have a much more complicated view where China is also involved in things like finance, um, a lot in the case of Mauritius banking, you know, kind of IT and so on. And there I think maybe, you know, you see a situation where the the engagement is more fine-grained, you know, kind of, and there's, there's more, there's, they're developing towards parity and developing towards a more, a, a more lasting kind of thing that relationship that's going to have uh, power beyond, you know, the oil running out. Well, of course, that touches on Jacob Zuma's comments from earlier this year that the current imbalances in Sino-African trade are not sustainable, to, his, to use his word. Um, but it, and, and I think Angola is really an excellent example of that, where the distribution of the oil wealth uh, is so uh, unfair. And then the fact that you have this extremely high Gini coefficient uh, in Angola. And so, again, that's why I come back to this idea of does middle-income status actually mean anything if the uh, accompanying governance and the inequity is so high. So that'll be something yeah. that we uh, that we look on. Anne, what are your final thoughts on this? 
I mean, I had the same exact reaction. I think that, I mean, what is this, who cares or what, what, what does it matter whether, you know, they reach this, um, this, uh, limit and become middle income countries. I don't know, you know, does this mean that people, uh, their lives are really improving and, you know, our economy is really becoming more, uh, I guess, um, more developed or I, I just didn't think that this kind of had any, uh, sort of implications for China-Africa relations. I think that um, it's sort of a, a way of measuring that doesn't have much meaning behind mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Well, I guess it's one indicator, I mean, just one little point on the on the graph that shows that Africa is at least going in the right direction and that trade and, and development are what's kind of lifting it there rather than aid, which has been the, the, the modus operandi for the past half century. So if so, it's encouraging, I guess, in one sense, irrelevant in another sense. But in some ways, it also highlights the fact that a lot of the metrics that organizations like the World Bank use uh, may be antiquated now. Uh, may not have any, any any meaning. That is, if the quality of life for the majority of people is not improving, uh, then, again, to Anne's point, who cares? So, um, well, Anne will have the last word in today's show. Uh, so we want to, you know, thank you for joining us. Anne, uh, since you got the last word, we'll start the kind of Twitter round, round robin with you. Uh, if people want to follow what you are doing and thinking and reading on Twitter, where can they find you? I'm at Anne Schur 7 A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-07. And, of course, uh, that uh, Anne is the same Anne that's on Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, so you can see her there almost every day, and she's posting stories, uh, you know, moderating the discussion. And, again, we have over 17,000 fans, largely from Africa. We're actually looking to diversify our fan base a little bit. So if you happen to live in China, Asia, the U.S., or Europe and would like to engage and, and kind of follow along a conversation that's going on this would be a great place to do it so uh, again facebook.com slash china africa project cobus if people want to follow you on twitter and what you're what you're doing these days where's the best place that they can find you um, I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Um, and I'm also, the last week I've been good on Twitter and also been, you know, frequently on the Facebook page as well. Nice, that's great. And then you can find me at uh, E-O-Lander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R on Twitter. And unlike Stadenesque over there, uh, I have not actually been <laughs> that good this week, but I'm going to be better next week in tweeting more often. I'm usually tweeting almost every day the top headlines in China, Africa, and of course, if you want to listen to the podcast, we've got a whole bunch of different ways you can do it from subscribing to us on Stitcher, on, uh, on our Facebook page. is an excellent, excellent way to list, to follow the show. There's a bright orange button that says podcast. You can listen to the last 25 episodes uh, on SoundCloud and, of course, on iTunes. And we would just be so grateful if you could rate us on iTunes and if you could leave any comments because that, of course, helps us move up in the iTunes ecosystem so that we can get a little more visibility. So that would would be great. So thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next Sunday with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Talk to you then.